When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hang Up and Listen is brought to you by SAP HANA. SAP HANA helps the world's best companies get the answers they need to become more agile, develop new streams of revenue, and predict the future. Run SAP and run simple. Visit sap.com slash reimagine to learn more. And by Mile IQ. If you're one of the 60 million Americans who drive for work, then you know that your miles are your dollars. Every mile you don't log is money that you are losing. Mile IQ is the only mileage tracker app that detects, logs, and calculates your miles for you, ensuring that every mile is accounted for and no dollar is lost. Try Mile IQ for free today by texting HANGUP to 31996. That's HANGUP. To 31996. Hi, I'm Julie Lifcott Hames, the host of Getting In. I'm the former dean of freshmen at Stanford and the author of How to Raise an Adult. Getting In is a new podcast from Panoply, following a group of high school seniors through the college admission process. And right now is crunch time, especially for students applying early decision. You know, when you put it all together, it's a lot. I don't really sleep. I drink a lot of black coffee, but you know, I'm, I'm stressed, but I'm, I could be worse. I could be bored. That's what you'll hear on the new episode of Getting In from Panoply. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of October 26th, 2015. 
On this week's show, we'll discuss the upcoming Mets Royals World Series with baseball writer and Kansas City superfan Randy Gisarly. We'll also talk about the NFL's first foray into internet only broadcasting and what it means for the future of sports television. Finally, Greg Wyshynski of Puck Daddy will join us to talk about the NHL's new three on three overtime and Jack Eichel and Connor McDavid, the National Hockey League's new generational stars. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, and really a generational podcaster. Hello, Stefan. <laughs> not sure what that means. It's not really kind of any testament to quality. It's just that you belong to a generation. generation. Yeah. So just take that for what it's worth. Okay. Take that in the spirit of which it, it's intended. Thanks. Uh, with us from New York, as always, is Mike Pesca, host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist with Mike Pesca. Demographers have tried to place him in a generation, but he defies their efforts. He's a man, a man apart, a man of man with no generation. Well, the, you know, the generation X, generation Y. Now there's a generation Z. How do they come up with these names? The thing is, at the end of the alphabet, like a lot of other alphabets, that's where they throw the extra letters, like the zero with the slash through it, <laughs> which is, I think, literally called zero or O with slash. So I'm around there. I'm not a um, di- diacritic. I'm not. Is that what it's called? A diacritic. I think of you as a tilde. Thanks. I don't need your diacritics with your diacriticism. Everyone's a diacritic. Okay, big announcement. If you're a fan of the Slate Podcast, it's the Slate Podcasting event of the year. Maybe second to the first Just Live show, but it's right up there. Maybe the Slate Podcast event of the year. Notice the maybe, but I'm excited about it. Stefan and Mike will be there. Steve Metcalf, Julia Turner, Dana Stevens will be there. David Plotz. Emily Bazelon, John Dickerson will be there, hosted by Dan Coyce. It is the Superfest. John Dickerson, the CBS television network personality? Unless there is a special Face the Nation on Monday night, November 16th, at around 7 p.m., John Dickerson will be there. But I think maybe he would even do this at a Face the Nation. Do not tell his bosses at CBS. But this is a live show in New York. It's on Broadway. It's Slate Podcasting on Broadway. On 43rd Street. It's a town hall. I'm just giving you the music pad. Mike Pasco may or may not. I'm I'm going with the equivocations here. Have a special new song prepared because it is Slate Superfest on Broadway. So if you're a fan of all the podcasts, you should go. It's going to be great. We did one last year. It was very fun. Um, You can go to slate.com slash superfest NYC to learn about how to get tickets Slate Plus members get a discount. Everyone should go. November 16th, Monday, Broadway, and Curtain. All right. A quick whimsy watch. I didn't notice that much whimsy this week. I don't want to force it, but there was a phenomenon that I wanted to note. I saw it on the LSU game on uh, Saturday, Saints game on Sunday. could just be a Louisiana thing, but there was some serious wrong-way Goldfarb action with players pointing players believing they recovered a fumble or onside kick and then accidentally pointing in the way of their opponent. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I love when that happens. The ref's like, okay, if a guy on one team, you know, thinks the other team recovered, I mean, that he's got to be telling the truth. I think in the NFL rules, right. Doesn't that trump actual replay review? Shouldn't that be held as great sportsmanship that all our children should follow? No, no. We're talking about beaning Joey Bats next time he gets up to bat. That is so that is, that is the intersection, the Venn diagram of whimsy and follies. That kind of fell in there. I also noticed some anti-whimsy with 
Greg Hardy mm-hmm. getting in a fight on the sidelines with his special teams coach, a man who is not a very nice man. But you know what? At least the special teams coach is a man. He is a man. He's not, he's not assaulting. He didn't throw him onto a bed of assault rifles. Making a lot of progress. I think Jerry Jones, Cowboys owner, can be proud. He's a leader of this team. That's what he said. That is the anti-whimsy of the week. That's what did he said it, after the game. Did anybody else have whimsy or anti-whimsy? No. It was not a, not a big whimsy week. We might have missed some whimsy. A lot of games in the NFL. I woke up Who early. Knows what was going on in London? The giant comeback. <laughs> yeah. All right, our bonus segment for Slate Plus members Kirk Cousins. this week. Yeah, maybe that's why there wasn't whimsy, because all the games that could have been blowouts where naturally lead to whimsy, there were a lot of comebacks. So they had to, you know, gird against whimsy. Arian Foster tore his Achilles. Whimsy. <laughs> no, not whimsy. It was no. just whimsy, you know, sometimes. But not, but not a good case for the atheists, there. right? Yeah. Him going down like right. that? Yeah. Hand to God. All right. On our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week, oh, a lot of times we talk about a subject on on this program, and then, you know, something else will happen. We want to revisit it. We rarely revisit our topics. We're going to go back and and talk about some some recent hang-up topics. I've got some additional Leonard Fournette thoughts that I will share with you. Um, To hear this bonus segment and others like it on Hang Up and Listen and various other Slate shows, please sign up for Slate Plus. Uh, Try it out at slate.com slash hangupplus. You can get a free two-week trial. Try before you buy. Please do. Um, And that URL again is slate.com slash hangup plus. The World Series starts on Tuesday night in Kansas City with the Mets, who haven't won a title since 1986, facing the Royals, who haven't won one since 1985. It's the first time ever that the World Series has featured two teams that came into existence in baseball's expansion era, post-1961. And it's looking like the most interesting matchup within the matchup will be between the Mets' power pitching and the Royals' hitting. The Mets starters, who have a 265 ERA and 69 strikeouts in the postseason, threw the most 95 mile per hour plus pitches this year. The Royals led the league with a 284 batting average and were second with a 432 slugging against the fastest of fastballs. Joining us now for a World Series preview is Rani Gizerli, who's a dermatologist, a sports writer for Grandland and other places, and is a very happy Royals fan. Hello, Ranny. Good morning, gentlemen. I am happy. How are you? We're good. Are you as happy this year as you were last year? Last year's Royals team was unexpected. Um, They were kind of the darlings of baseball in the sports world. Now, familiarity has bred contempt, at least with Stefan. Um, What kind of what were your... (laughs) What did you anticipate I think the coming into? Was there from Stefan before? I don't think he needed familiarity. Um, that's My gr- contempt is 30, 40 years old. Yeah, the Yankees <laughs> Royals rivalry contempt. So, what were you thinking coming into this season, and sort of what was it like to root for the Royals in a year where maybe you were expecting them to make the World Series? Well, well first off. I just want to pause and say how insane it is that you are asking me which of the back-to-back World Series appearances (laughs) by the Kansas City Royals makes me happier. That is, you know, just the latest in a a long series of surreal moments that has been uh, as a Royals fan the last uh, 13 months or so. But I would say, I mean, it would be very difficult to top where the Royals were at this point last year just because... You would have to recreate 29 years of futility, you know, having the mark as basically the 
the longest playoff drought of any team in American professional sports. All of that contributed to making last year so so unique and so special. It was unexpected. They you know squeaked into the playoffs with the wild card team. They they won the greatest wild card game yet played. Uh, so all of last year was you know, a Cinderella story. And those are the best of stories, as long as Cinderella marries the prince. And the problem was that the prince didn't call back in the World Series. And the Royals got left hanging in Game 7. And that's sort of what's what's motivated the team, I think, all the season. But also is motivation, I think, as a fan in that, yeah, this year maybe not quite as special at this point, but it's still pretty damn special to be in the World Series anytime. And if they complete what they were unable to complete last year. If they're able to win the World Series, then it's it, it provides sort of the ultimate vindication for the one thing that last year was lacking. If they if they're able to pick up the one thing they were they, they missed last year, I think in the long run this season will be considered even more gratifying than last year's. Uh, they picked up a lot of things, though, heading into this season. Um, there were changes in the lineup, obviously. There were changes in attitude. There was this chip on, on their shoulder, you know, ridiculous or not, whether they were respected or not, you know, the old trope, tripe. Um, it's, it, old is trope. A tri- it is a tripe trope. It is, trope it is, I'm, I'm still on the, uh, on the tripe writer from last week. <laughs> um, that old trope about being respected. But what has impressed me and what kind of flipped me a little bit in terms of respect for the Royals was Tom Verducci's piece on, on Sports Illustrated this past week that described mm-hmm. what happened in Game 6 of the ALCS against Toronto and how the Royals coaches had really mapped out these scenarios that wound up playing out, particularly Jose Bautista's tendency to throw to second base when he's moving to his left in right field, a move that allowed Lorenzo Cain to score from first base with the winning run. Yeah, I think, you know, the Royals were, you know, have have been kind of, you know, mocked by um, analytic types, myself included, for, for many years because when it came to things like sabermetrics, they seem to be a little bit behind the times. And right. that perception has radically changed because they they definitely do use analytics, but as that article showed, the, the Royals I have kept it very close to the vest, but the fact is they're an extremely well-coached team. Um, you know, the, the Mike Gershley, the third base coach, you know, picking up on Batista's tendency and, and sending Lorenzo Cain home. Rusty Kuntz, the first base coach, is considered a, a savant when it comes to teaching base running. And then the advanced scouting that that uh, picked up on David Price tipping his changeup, mm-hmm. which may have tipped the scales in the, in the sixth inning of, of Game 2, which is probably the pivotal inning of the whole series. The Royals just up and down the organization, not just the players, but they really seem to have brought in people who know what they are doing, whether it's the players with the talent, the coaches with their ability to play up that talent, it's kind of almost frightening as a Royals fan to suddenly see this hapless team I've been rooting for for a generation turn into this kind of juggernaut of competence. I'm just not used to, to this. Well, and, and it's, also, it's also the counterweight to Ned Yost, the manager, being derided last year as kind of a managing buffoon who was stuck in, in the dark ages. Yeah, you know, and look, he still makes decisions that I, I think are are technically questionable. I mean, sticking, um, you know, sticking with Ryan Madsen instead of Wade Davis in the in the eighth inning of Game Six nearly came back to bite him. But the thing with Ned Yost that I've, we've come to to appreciate maybe a little too late is the number one job of a manager is not the tactical decisions he makes between seven p.m. and ten p.m. It's keeping the clubhouse together from ten p.m. to seven p.m. the next day, and in that regard, he seems to be 
uh, a friggin' genius because that team plays so well together that the, the clubhouse is so cohesive. And you're talking about a team now that in twice in the last two years, they have come back in an elimination game down four runs in the sixth inning. They did it last year in the wild card game. It, had, it was utterly unprecedented in Major League history. They did the exact same thing this year in Game 4 of the ALDS against the Astros, down 6-2 to two in the eighth inning, came back to win 9-6. to six. That, you, know, you do it once, maybe it's a fluke. You do it twice in two years, that's a sign of something going on in that clubhouse. That, that team is relentless. That team does not give in, and I think that has to reflect very well on the manager. You know, when you said 7 to 10 p.m., I'm like, wow, you're giving up innings 7, 8, and 9. But then I remembered you were in the central time zone. So maybe these games are ending closer to 10. So here's what we're going to do. I am a Mets fan, and we'll do one of these uh, hot takes, point counterpoint. I'm going to explain why the Mets are going to win the World Series, but you give me why I'm wrong. The Mets starting pitching is their strength. The Royals relief pitching is their strength. But starting pitchers go seven innings and relief pitchers go three or four. Therefore, the Mets strength is more important than the Royals strength. Counterpoint. Counterpoint. Pitchers may go seven innings in September or April. In October, they, they, they pitch for the Royals. They go five innings and the relievers throw four. This is the, this is the postseason with all the days off. You can, they can use Wade Davis and Kelvin Herrera pretty much every day. Um, and teams have shown that you can win in the postseason nowadays by, without a, a quality rotation, simply by relying on your bullpen heavily. And as good as the Mets' starting pitching is, the Royals' bullpen is equally dominant, equally you know, great. And uh, I think that's, gonna, that's going to make a big difference in the series. But if it goes seven games, the Mets' starters will accumulate somewhere near 50 innings, and the Royals' relievers will only accumulate somewhere around 30 innings. And also, the Royals... Don't take a lot of pitches, so I would expect the uh, Mets to go deeper. And then when you compare offenses, I think the Royals are more hurt by the DH rules than the Mets. Counterpoint. Counterpoint. The Royals feast on high uh, on on high velocity pitches, as you talked about earlier. They have done extremely well all season against ace type pitching. Number one starters, guys like Chris Sale, they've beat up on this year, um, and. and you know the kind of pitching that the, the Mets are going to throw at them. Matt Harvey, Jacob Degrom, Noah Syndergaard. These are these are not finesse guys, finesse guys who can who trick you with off-speed stuff that the Royals actually do struggle against. These guys throw 95 and up. The Royals lineup is designed to to face that kind of pitching. I don't think the Mets starting pitching is going to be nearly as dominant as it was against the Cubs. The Cubs this year were, I believe, one of the worst teams in baseball when it came to hitting. 95-plus mile-an-hour pitching, the Royals are the best. I think this is not going to be um, you know, a, a, a dominant starting pitching series for the Mets. So, Ranny, um, we talked about the kind of on-field matchup between New York and Kansas City. Off the field, I think that folks in the central time zone might have a desire to see a team from a certain American uh, metropolis go down, but these teams are kind of similar in that they haven't won the World Series in 30 years. They're low payroll for different reasons. But are you kind of able to recognize a bit of the Royals in the Mets? Or are you just kind of constitutionally unable to uh, recognize any similarity with the New York team? Yeah, I think the, the animosity towards New York itself is a little overstated. I mean, the Royals fans' beef is with the Yankees, specifically. And this is one area where Mets and Royals fans can come together. They both hate the Yankees. 
So the, the Yankees Mets, will never... not win the World Series this year. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We can we can we can both rejoice in that. And at least personally, I've never had anything uh, you know against the Mets. They were you know a great team in the '80s at the time when the Royals were kind of a great team, and and obviously they won consecutive World Series in 1985, 1986. Um, and like I said, this team, the Mets are. I like the Royals, the current Mets team is sort of built for this sort of modern baseball era that we live in now, which is so high strikeout that making contact um, and, and moving runners along and speed, all those things that didn't play very well 10 years ago, play a lot better today. So, no, I, I think there, there, there is a bit of a kindred spirit there with the Mets. Obviously, the difference is the starting pitching versus the bullpen, but um, I, I, I respect this Mets team. I, I, I think the Royals are favored to win the series, but I'm certainly not overlooking them because that starting pitching is so good. Tyler Kepner had a nice breakdown of uh, similarities between the Mets and the Royals, including their mascots. Big-headed, kind of weird, revived in the 2000s. I give the edge to Mr. Met over Slugger. <laughs> not even um, close. Well, let's just say if the Royals win this series... A, a particular picture of Slugger with his with his arm around Mrs. Met may get a lot of play on my Twitter account. All I've heard time. rumors, and I don't want to I don't want <laughs> to feed those here. The rumors are true, but we'll 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 save that humiliation until after the series. I will say that Mr. Met, Mrs. Met, and Slugger they each have four fingers. Slugger being a mm -hmm. lion whose head turns into a crown, so not actually a. <laughs> Part of nature, but like all great mascots and cartoon characters, four-fingered, so they have that in common. Well, because, yeah, because Mr. Met is found in the wild everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> in the wilds of Flushing. <laughs> well, and let me just say, maybe we can end on this note. You know, it's a great thing that the Major League Baseball season is so long, because now we have plenty of distance from April, and most fans will not realize that the Royals are this entirely unsympathetic bunch of bullies who throw at other teams, scream at hitters, start <laughs> fights, and Yudano Ventura, who got sent to the minors for incompetence, could have killed a guy. So it's a good thing, and maybe we could still think of the Royals as this plucky underdog story. Oh, the Mets are adorable. Go ahead, Ray. Remind, remind me, is Scott Boris still running the Mets, or did, did he let Sandy Alderson do his I job? I will say no time? institution has stood athwart Scott <laughs> Boris and yelled stop more than the New York Mets. When history is written and the Scott Boris uh, historic drop in stock is noted, it will be all around Sandy Alderson putting a stake in that guy's heart. And how many innings is Harvey at? Okay. Do you know how much I regret writing at that moment how silly it would be for the Mets to shut Matt Harvey down. <laughs> I'm now inclined to think Scott Boris is a genius and, and, and a, a voice, a, a lone voice of sanity crying out in the wilderness that should have been heeded. Alas. Well, Matt Harvey will be starting game one of the World Series on Tuesday. Ned Yost of the Royals, genius that he is, has not announced the Royals game one starter. That will be the decision that turns the World Series. If the Mets don't know who they're facing, how could they possibly win? Ranny, Giserly, good luck. Thank you. Godspeed. Thank you, guys. Ranny Giserly is a dermatologist and a sports writer. You can follow him on Twitter at Giserly, J-A-Z-A-Y-E-R-L-I. And if I need an appointment? Yes. And skindocs.org. <laughs> <laughs> Just definitely tweet at him if you, if you have a skin condition. I'm sure he'd love that. <laughs> now it is time for a word from our sponsor this week, SAP. 
SAP HANA helps the world's best companies get the answers they need to become more agile, develop new streams of revenue, predict the future, and reimagine the way they do business. Run SAP and run simple. Visit sap.com slash saphana to learn more. Sunday's game between the Buffalo Bills and Jacksonville Jaguars featured all possible NFL gimmicks rolled into one not very interesting football game. It started at 9.30 a.m. Eastern, gimmick, in London's Wembley Stadium, gimmick, and was streamed exclusively around the world on the internet, gimmick, and also included Jacksonville running back Toby Gerhardt running into the line from the one-yard line and not scoring four straight times, which I'm not sure was a gimmick. But no, was... that's his bread and butter. <laughs> <laughs> that's touchdown Toby's way. <laughs> on Monday morning, the NFL and Yahoo announced that the stream averaged 2.36 million viewers and that 15 million people sampled Yahoo's live stream. Uh, to put that into context... The U.S.-Belgium game during the 2014 World Cup was watched by three and a half million people online via ESPN. So we got about two-thirds of the average viewers for Bills-Jaguars versus USA-Belgium. I'm guessing USA-Belgium was just in the United States. That is correct. Yes, those are U.S. numbers. And because the is, NFL this... also said that people in 180-plus countries watched the Bills-Jaguars. Countries that only Mike Pesca has heard of. Um, so, Mike, what did you think of the viewing experience? And then maybe we can get into what this means as a business proposition. Well, first of all, one of the reasons the numbers are spiked is if you went to Yahoo's homepage, which is apparently something people do, but the, uh, <laughs> the game was streaming without you asking for it or not. So it wasn't just people seeking out this game. It was anyone who was looking for, you know, a car deal in Muncie. Now, the weird thing is, when I searched, as I did a few times, Yahoo Football NFL, like the actual Yahoo link was like sixth down. And maybe this is Google going hard against Yahoo search engine, because I certainly didn't do a Yahoo search for it. I did a Google search. But there was like a Business Insider article. There was a Syracuse Courier Times. Is that their, is that their newspaper? I think there's a Courier in there. Post, Post Standard, Post Standard Courier Times B, uh, taking you there, three of V links, uh, three links. So I thought that, since I watch a lot of games on TV anyway, it was totally the same as so much of my viewing experience, although I took my iPhone with me to the gym and I watched it on the tread and that was cool. <laughs> it doesn't always have – it's not always allowable if it's not – There's not always a TV game. dangling directly over you while you're running. Well, yeah. The thing is that uh, if the game wasn't on – I mean, you know, I just think in, in ways it expands the potential reach and in ways it limits the potential reach. People in the world of tech assumes that everyone – they'll cite the statistics about how great Wi-Fi is. But, you know, Wi-Fi does seem less reliable. I mean, I, it's certainly for me as a cord cutter less reliable, even good Wi-Fi, less perfect than TV. TV always works. Cable TV, you turn it on, it always works and there's always glitches with the computer. Except when the cable goes down. Yeah, but that well, barely the, the happens. cable goes down extremely rarely. And yep. that's an interesting thing is that people were blaming the NFL and Yahoo for problems with their internet service, which it's like saying, you know, if Comcast goes down, blaming CBS or the NFL because you can't watch the game. But people are more, I think, willing to blame, you know, Yahoo for 
their internet problems. I think it's it's less kind of transparent. And this is a, this is a meaningless blame. In five years or ten years or thirty years, there, there will be no complaints about the quality or the reliability or the durability of of wireless internet service. Stefan believes in the internet cartel. I do. I in do. 30, in thirty years, we'll in thirty all years, be. we'll be watching these yeah. games yeah, what on is the side of come, our foreheads. What's going to come faster, the end of the NFL or good reliable internet <laughs> service everywhere? Um, so yeah, I. We've all watched sporting events, you know, streaming. Mike is probably watching one right now. Um, mm-hmm. Who knows? So as a consumer experience, this is not interesting. Right. The only thing interesting about it was that you could only watch it on the Internet. So it was actually a worse experience than usual. But as a business story, Stefan, it is interesting. And looking at whether the NFL is going to be selling a package of games to an Internet-only provider, they're looking to, you know, find money wherever they can find it. Yeah. Um, they It's inevitable that they're going to send sell a package of games to an internet provider, or they're going to allow their current partners to to simulcast games online, too. I mean, we, th- there's absolutely no way that the, the, the telecast or the streaming of live sports events doesn't go this way. There's no reason for it not to. The published reports said that Yahoo paid about 15 to $17 million for the rights to show this game. Uh, they claimed that they sold out all of the inventory for advertising, though there was a report on Sports Business Journal that they, that Yahoo had to cut prices for the ads from about $200,000 for 30 seconds to about $50,000 for 30 seconds in the end. Again, all of this feels sort of neither here nor there long term. The NFL has inventory. They're still not selling as much Thursday night football as they could. They could certainly carve out certain numbers of games to put online. It's in the NFL's long-term interests, of course, to drum up as many buyers for its product as they can. And these are going to be willing buyers. It might not be Yahoo, which has had financial problems. Marissa Mayer um, has said that that they are cutting back. They laid people off. Um, but there are others out there. And those others could be someone like ESPN. It could be Google. It could be Facebook. There are plenty of people, I think, that would be willing to invest in the NFL as a long-term proposition until the NFL doesn't exist anymore, of course. This is great for the NFL, not for even how much they actually got paid, but just for leverage and just for leverage for negotiating their next contract with, you say, how can they go up? And there are three, four networks and they all have a piece of it. It doesn't seem logical that they wouldn't set their prices, but you inject to it, you inject into it, Apple, Netflix. I mean, the fact that this was on Yahoo, which is not mm-hmm. even something I really think about. Um, I would think that Google would be the first to get in there and buy it. I would think that Hulu would be, you know, next up. Yahoo's mm-hmm. far down the list. That's great for all the leagues. And I really think that a package of games is going on, a basketball games or one of the, I don't know about hockey, how popular it is. Basketball or baseball is just such a logical thing to put there because it's not NFL. It's not appointment. You know, it's just, uh, I think would mark uh, the Google Plus experience as uh, a little more special than it is right. now. The NFL has been different because its inventory is much smaller than the NBA or the NFL, which of course do sell big packages as on a subscription basis. And the NFL hasn't done that because it doesn't need to at this point. Yeah, I mean, base, you can already watch any baseball right. game online. And the reason that the NFL can do this is, like Stefan said, the limited inventory. You're not going to get Yahoo which just appears desperate to be relevant and, you know, spent tens of millions of dollars for a season of community and, like, has Katie Couric making a $10 million salary. They just want anything to get people to go to their homepage because people don't think Yahoo Mail is cool anymore. You know, nobody's going to – Yahoo's not going to pay to get a package of 
baseball games. They're not going to pay right. to get, you know, anything but the NFL. The thing that I found interesting that I didn't realize, and I think probably most people who watched it didn't realize, is that for advertisers, the reason that having a game online is so valuable is that they can use retargeting technology. And so if Mike Pesca is watching the game on his phone or on his computer, you know, like Toyota or whoever can extend their message beyond the three game window to one, two, three weeks down the road by like using cookies on your device, which you can't get if you're just passively watching the game on TV. And I think that might be as big a reason or another big reason um, that advertisers and broadcasters and the NFL want these games on your device so that they can just market to you more effectively now, and sim- creepily. Similarly, was that why, was it the fact that it was on the internet, the, the uh, logos or the team names in the end zones were not filled in because I guess the Wembley crew didn't want to, you know, spend their time taking away the letters, but digitally they were filled in, but they could have done that on TV also. Right. It wasn't it wasn't because it was on Yahoo. The thing. But we are making, as you said, all the baseball games are on uh, the Internet. It's not that big a deal. But, you know, the reason that the NFL is culturally ascendant and culturally dominant is we in the world of Slate or us or, you know, I'm a cord cutter. We don't think I mean, we don't give it a second thought to watch something on the Internet. But I do think a huge percentage of especially NFL fans, given the demographic, given how many people over, you know, 50 or 60, not totally Internet savvy do. And so pushing them to the point where, okay, what do I have to do? I've never done this before. That is kind of a big deal. Let's not downplay the fact that even though all these games are available for those who seek it out, you know, it is a big deal to say the only place you could get this now is Yahoo. And we're going to have to habituate some of our users to getting used to that. Right. And I think there's a distinction to be made too, Mike, between how people consume baseball, basketball, hockey, other sports that have these bigger slates of of games, these longer schedules than people who consume the NFL. The NFL remains a mass audience sport. Um, Baseball, basketball, hockey subscribers online are not a mass audience. These are diehard fans who will do anything to watch these games. So the presentation and the accessibility to the NFL's games have to remain broad and they have to remain accessible. And yeah, technology, you know, to some degree, the technology hurdle will be overcome or has to be overcome for the NFL to to really remain interested in in doing this long term. Well, this was essentially a research expedition mm-hmm. and the NFL was experimenting on us and they were experimenting to see if the kind of backbone if um you know Yahoo or whatever other major internet provider could support fans watching all over the world. And I think that it did hold up and that any kind of issues at least based on what I'm reading were more um, with kind of end of the line local internet service providers. Um, but they want to see how many people would watch, and they basically use this throwaway game that nobody cared about, Bills and Jaguars. Um, Except that it was in London, which they did care about because they could market that as a European audience or a worldwide audience and, and regage again or take one more measurement of whether it's feasible to have a team full time in a place like London. Yeah, so the NFL is basically collecting data on all these different experiments that it's running, and it's going to use it in the next, you know, bargaining with TV networks, with um, internet companies. So we were all just basically guinea pigs mm-hmm. in this project, and it was, you know, it was an inferior product. You couldn't 
use any kind of DVR controls. Um, the picture was not as good as it would be on TV. But again, like this game was pretty low stakes. I am continually amazed. I'm in the 99th percentile, if not higher. Is there a higher 99.9% percentile mm-hmm, of sports mm-hmm. fan knowledge? And I have never been able to retain more than like one member of the Jacksonville Jaguars roster at once. I mean, I know Blake Bortles. I guess I know a little more than that. Blake Toby Bortles, Gerhardt, you'll never forget Toby Blake Gerhardt Bortles, now. Toby Gerhardt, TJ Eldon. It's just like a team where, where college players go to die. I think maybe like Tim Tebow and Michael Sam are on the Jaguars and just nobody realizes it. Mm-hmm. It is. a You know, it's so they have the black pants. They have the shiny helmets. There's you expect the band at halftime to be better. Like even the names, <laughs> they, 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 they reek of like, uh, let's put them on an NBC at 12, traditionally black college. Oh, look, the coach has like 59,000 wins in a row. Is it what's isn't there the Grambling Tigers? Who's the there Eddie is Robinson? A, yeah, yeah. No, but the, there's another uh, traditionally black college that is nicknamed the Jaguars. It'll come to me. But yes, Southern. Every, yes, Southern. Exactly. How are they not Southern? That's what they are. Oh, they are Southern. When Shahid Khan, the owner of the Jaguars, who also owns Fulham in the Premiership, moves this team to London, it will all become clear. The towers of London. Here they come. <laughs> the towers. The London bridges. Broils. Now time for a word from our second sponsor of the show, and that is Mile IQ, the number one mileage tracker app, one that more than a million Americans trust. Mile IQ automatically logs your drives. It is the only mileage tracker app that detects, logs, and calculates your drives for you automatically. If you're one of the 60 million Americans who drive for work and you're not getting reimbursed for it, then you need to get the Mile IQ app right now. It has five-star ratings in the Apple and Google Play app stores. It's not one of these apps with a four-star rating or three Three or two. Yeah, sometimes it's like one and like a little bit, and you're not sure if it's like a quarter or a half. This is five stars. Don't round me out, bro. (laughs) Um, I downloaded it, had the whole thing down in a minute. It's not at all difficult to figure out. Very easy. Uh, MileIQ records your drives automatically. You just swipe right to mark it as business or left for personal. It's like online dating with your car, but it's not really like that at all. It's more like swiping right and swiping left in a non-dating context, but we know how to swipe right and swipe left. Um, if, you, if you're driving for work and you're not already using MileIQ, then you are losing money fast. The average user logs $547 a month in drives. That's over $6,000 a year in miles. You could be claiming so stop wasting time manually tracking your miles and stop losing money that you should be redeeming. Mile IQ does all the work. It lets you focus on what's actually important. So here's how you try it. You can try it for free right now by texting hang up to 31996. Standard messaging and data rates apply. Again, that's hang up. You text that to 31996 to download the Mile IQ app and start your free trial right away. All right, it is now time for our last segment of the day. And this year, the National Hockey League has moved to a new overtime format, Stefan. Used to be five on five. Mm -hmm. Then it went four on four. Mm -hmm. Now it's three on three. What next? I think it's going to be like the Royals-Lion versus uh, Mr. Met, just kind of Bouncing, bouncing off yeah. each other. And I think if they t- if they took their skates off, that would be good. It'll be four on four, but that's just a reference to the fingers they'll be allowed to use. <laughs> <laughs> um, joining us now to talk about three on three hockey and the NHL's new 
young possible stars is Greg Wyshynski, the boss man of Yahoo's Puck Daddy, the uh, guy who does <laughs> the podcast Merrick versus Wyshynski, which you can get on iTunes. He's also the author of a new book called Take Your Eye Off the Puck, How to Watch Hockey by Knowing Where to Look. There's a forward by Jeremy Roenick. Come on. So good, that's good stuff. Uh, hey, Greg, what's up? Oh, nothing much. Just enjoying the uh, the renewed debate on what is or is not hockey based on this three-on-three overtime. So is or is not three-on-three overtime hockey uh, hockey on cocaine? Because I have heard that analogy many times. It's one that I uh, enjoy hearing, but I don't know if it's uh, accurate. Well, I believe, first of all, it's a 1980s dynasty for hockey on cocaine. But uh, we'll, we'll forget about that for a second. <laughs> the, uh, the true fact of it is that three-on-three overtime is, is a, it, it's, it's everything this shootout should have been. It's kinetic. It's unpredictable. Um, it's fun. It's real fun. Um, and, uh, and ultimately, for a lot of people, a slightly more satisfying, although still faulty way to decide who wins uh, hockey games. But overall, I think the the returns on it early are are pretty good. So what have we seen so far just in actual games? What you would imagine would happen is there's just all this wide open ice. They're just people skating around free as birds and that people, you know, the teams would score within like 15 seconds. So what's actually happened? What's actually happened is that you, you start to see teams trying to find some structure, trying to, trying to leave two defensemen back in the zone or a defenseman in the forward. It's usually the structure is two forwards and a defenseman. So that you have the, the teams without the puck trying to leave their guys back in order to uh, stop the odd man rushes, which are the, the thing that you get most of all in the three-on-three. Um, and it never works. I mean, <laughs> basically, the first time someone misses a shot or turns the puck over, Every structure, every system goes out the window, and then it becomes fire wagon hockey. And, and we've seen uh, more breakaways by defensemen in the three-on-three overtime than I think you'd probably see in a full NHL season previously. It's, it's that level of unpredictability. Um, Justin Williams, who's a, 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 a skater now for the Washington Capitals, here for the Kings for a long time, uh, told me before the season that the coaches can try to coach the fun out of this thing, but it's going to be impossible just by... The, the nature of, of what this three-on-three overtime is, which is, uh, you know, uncontrolled chaos at times. I just watched uh, while you were talking, not that I wasn't paying attention, <laughs> I was watching Tampa Bay defenseman Jason Garrison win a three-on-three overtime uh, against the Flyers a couple weeks ago. I mean, three-on-three overtime is batshit. I've watched a couple of them. I don't know what fire wagon <laughs> hockey is, but I think that it's batshit hockey. And look, it's not hockey, but it is pond hockey. It's fun. It's, you know, these guys are exhausted. It's also got that, that factor of they've just played 60 minutes of hockey, and now you're asking them to skate full bore on this giant rink, and there's only six of them out there doing the skating. Goalies must detest this. Defensemen probably don't like it very much, though they do get a chance to score, as you mentioned. Um, and whether it's hockey or not, I don't know that I care. A shootout isn't <laughs> hockey, that's for sure. Goalies hate it. <laughs> let's, be, let's be honest. Go- goalies are not exactly fans of the three-on-three. Uh, they, they weren't fans of the shootout in the sense that it's a faulty mechanism to determine who wins or loses a team game. 
but they did like the fact that they were all really good at it, and uh, and their numbers for success obviously were higher than those of the shooters. Um, but this, you know, Dustin Bufflin of the Winnipeg Jets came out over the weekend and said it's it's terrible. It's the worst thing about the league right now. It's it ain't hockey. And you know, when you're a 265 pound guy having to haul ass up and down the ice every other night uh, for three minutes, of course you're going to say that. But also, I think the critics of it kind of lose the fact that it's it's the lesser of two necessary evils. I mean, the National Hockey League has decided that instead of ties, we are going to determine the winner of these games with something that, quote-unquote, ain't hockey. And if the goal of the three-on-three is to offer an entertaining option that still requires a defense in playing a position, still requires passes to be attempted, and isn't the shootout, and I think that we should all be pretty happy with that because the fewer shootouts, the better, I think, for the National Hockey League. No, and it is. I mean, I was on Twitter the other night. Somebody tweeted, the Flyers, and I think it was this game, the Flyers and Lightning are going to overtime. And I was like, where's the NHL network? I wanted to watch it. Oh, for sure. Exactly. And, and um, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of these three-on-threes. I, I, I mean, they're, they're kind of like snowflakes right now. I mean, no, no two are like, in how, when they finish or how they finish or what they look like. Um, there's still a lingering doubt in the minds of many fans that there's still going to be a way to coach the fun out of it. And, you know, I, I look back at my own reactions to the shootout when it started in 05, 06, and, you know, I, I didn't necessarily like it, but I thought it was fun and entertaining. And, and maybe when we get into year three or four of a three-on-three overtime, uh, you know, we'll feel differently about it. My main gripe with it was that if you are a purist and you don't think three-on-three is hockey and you like the four-on-four better, the American Hockey League experimented all last year with playing four-on-four for, I think it was... Four minutes. Uh, four four yeah, minutes, four and minutes and then three-on-three three three for, yeah. for three minutes. And, yep. and, and it was extraordinarily effective in reducing the number of shootouts in the league and still gave teams the chance to play four-on-four hockey, which obviously is, is a bit more like the previous 60 minutes of the game. Uh, I wish they had done that, but the National Hockey League Players Association actually is the one who put the kibosh on it and said, we don't want our guys to have to skate for all those extra minutes. Let's go straight to the three-on-three. Isn't it funny, though, that they said, oh, let's see, how, how long should we do four-on-four and how long should we do three-on-three? Three? Uh, four minutes and three minutes. <laughs> they did that just to <laughs> organize their thoughts. But there's a bit of the circular reasoning. That stat you just cited that I've seen st- cited a lot, which is, uh, how good it was at eliminating the shootouts and the shootouts plunged, you know, from two thirds of the time to happening a quarter of the time. That is literally circular reasoning. It presupposes the thing is good and better than a shootout because it eliminates the shootout. You could turn it around and say, what if we started with a shootout and then judge the effectiveness of the shootout, like letting four shooters on each side shoot, and if it was still tied, then we'd play three-on-three. You could say, oh, look how good the shootout is. It obviates the need for a three-on-three period. Anyway, my whole point is that the whole reason that Dustin Bufflin hated it is his team lost. And if they won that night, he wouldn't have said anything. (laughs) I, I, but here, but the thing is, though, and and we we polled a bunch of players uh, earlier this year about the three on three for Puck Daddy. The bottom line is that these 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 players didn't appreciate the shootout. I think the shootout lost luster with these guys when it became apparent that this the skills competition at the All Star Game was going to determine who made or missed the playoffs. And and the idea that you play sixty minutes of a team game and then it gets boiled down to you know three or four attempts 
between individuals without a teammate on the ice to pass to, uh, I, I think really irks these guys. So the, the idea that there's a new mechanism in place that can end games in sort of an artificial way before they go on too late and, and all that stuff, and, and, uh, and it's not necessarily going to be a shootout, it's it's really it's what the players wanted, and uh, and I think at the ultimately I think what most fans wanted now that the shootout has become kind of become a little bit repetitive and and predictable and and uh, and and seen as sort of a faulty way to determine who makes or misses the playoffs. All right, let's talk about uh, Connor McDavid and Jack Eichel. They went one and two in the uh, latest NHL draft. McDavid to the Oilers and Eichel to the Sabers. They were touted as, you know, not just great young players who'd come in and play well this year, but the fabled generational stars. So what are the early returns on McDavid and Eichel? Both pretty solid. Uh, in, in Eichel's case, I think he's shown flashes of maybe being the next Mike Madonna to, uh, to compare him to another great American player. Uh, just a blistering good shot. He scored a goal earlier this year in which he, you know, skated back, stole the puck, skated in, scored a goal all on his own. And, you know, for a teenager to be able to do that in this league against uh, players that have been around for a bit is, is pretty remarkable. And, uh, and Buffalo is, has completely embraced him. I mean, it's, it's, he is the franchise guy. I think the way it sets up is, is actually kind of nice for Buffalo in the sense that uh, they, they lost out on McDavid, they end up getting Eichel. And if there's, there's a better chip-on-the-shoulder underdog, we didn't, you know, we, we, we had to get the second pick instead of the first, but our second pick's going to be better than your first city. It's probably Buffalo. So I think he actually fits in nicely there. And as for McDavid, I actually traveled up to Edmonton for his first home game there and learned a lot about where he is as far as a pro. He's starting to really find a groove now. His offensive numbers have really picked up. Uh, they ran into a bit of trouble earlier this season because they wanted to play him with Taylor Hall, who was the big offensive star in Edmonton. Uh, and those two just didn't mesh. They both want the puck all the time, so they instead uh, slotted him with another player named Neil Yakupov, who he's, he's vibed with pretty well. But the bottom line for McDavid is, um, you know, he's 18, and the important thing for him at this point, according to his coach, is don't believe that the fate of this team rests on your shoulders. And, and, I, and that's really hard for McDavid because throughout his entire life, that's been the case. <laughs> his team's live or die based on how well he plays. But in the, in the NHL, on the Oilers, who aren't going to be all that good this year, the stress of him coming in and not getting immediate results, I think, was just kind of messing with him a little bit. And, and now I think it's, it's starting to lift a little bit. And are the, are the comparisons to other generational players fair at this point? I mean, in Edmonton, Gretzky, you know, are, are we heading into an era where we can count on having these guys sort of rise to the top the way that Sidney Crosby or Mario Lemieux did in previous generations? You can, and, and I think in, in McDavid's case, you can just see it already in the way he plays. He's got that sixth sense, that, that hockey sonar that comes with being one of the great players where he's thinking several steps ahead on each play, making passes to guys that no normal human should know are within his purview. Uh, and, and the comparisons to Sidney Crosby as far as his passing ability are pretty solid. He's got incredible wheels too. Um, he's he's a, he's going to be an extraordinarily special player. But it's again, I find Edmonton to be fascinating because I mentioned Taylor Hall before. They've got this collection of young players that they've drafted over the last several years when they kept on you know winning the lottery and, and you know finishing in the basement and getting really high picks. They've got this collection of young players that are sort of in their mid twenties, and now you've got this eighteen year old that comes in. And I've kind of heard some rumblings about the idea that. 
it's sort of the seniors welcoming in the hotshot freshmen. And, and how, is, how did that dynamic play out when uh, they're supposed to be generation next and then this kid comes in and all of a sudden it's his team? That's, that's an interesting little, little scenario to see play out in Edmonton. And, and, and it may result in some of those seniors being shipped out at some point. And the youngsters will come up having been used to three-on-three hockey. They won't complain about it, and they'll have the advantage. Yes, as the generations pass. And that's what I've always said about, like, fighting. Like, you know, we don't have to enact a rule to get rid of fighting. As the generations pass and more kids come up not having it be a huge part of their games and not necessarily needing fighting to get to the NHL like the generations that preceded them, then fighting would, would decline, and that's exactly what's happened. And, and it's the same thing with other stuff, you know, when, when it becomes sort of the norm for generations that come through, you know, junior and, and minor league systems and stuff like that, then it's just going to get better and better. And three on three might be that, too. All right. Here's my idea. Two on two, one on one for hockey, and then the other two guys fight. And then you go to cards for the fight and it, it's going to it's going to be brilliant. It's going to be brilliant. Not at all. Not at all a desperate move for attention. You know, if you really want to capture the zeitgeist, I believe what what you're really trying to say is three on three, and then they play League of Legends for uh, a while and uh, and and bring the esports into it. I got an idea. Three on one, but the three have to wear Timberlands, and the one can skate, (laughs) and they can't lace them up. Okay. That's cool. Can't, can't that's, in the, that's in the last three minutes, yeah. <laughs> laced in the first four on laced. <laughs> really, it really any, but again, anything's better than the shootout. So everything we've suggested here is, is, is optimal versus the shootout. Greg Wyshynski uh, runs Yahoo's hockey blog. Puck Daddy, he is one of the two men who do the Merrick versus Wyshynski podcast, and he is the author of the book, Take Your Eye Off the Puck, How to Watch Hockey by knowing where to look. Greg, thanks as always. Thanks for having me. Now it is time for After Balls. We've just had a uh, brief internal debate about whether to do Firewagons or Biancalanas. Mike, do you want to speak up for the Biancalana side? Buddy Biancalana was a favorite David Letterman punchline, and rightly so. The light-hitting middle infielder once <laughs> debuted as a uh, late-night gag where you press the top of his head and the Buddy Biancalana hit counter ticked up one. All right. I, I think you won. I agree. It's like the uh, the rap battle in uh, 8 Mile. The other, the other side just can't speak. Um, Do you want to know where the Buddy Biancalana hit counter ultimately wound up? Go ahead, guys. Guess. Career? Return of career hits. Career hits? Buddy Biancalana? Go ahead. 403. 217. You know, he does have an outsized place in our imagination. 113. (laughs) I always go way over. You do go over. I'm guessing. I'm 3-0 against you. Next time, I'm going to guess about a quarter. Of You'd what be I terrible on the prices, right? He, he only had one year of more than 200 plate appearances and only three years of triple digits. So he just wants How many that. career plate appearances? I'm going to say 413. <laughs> 607. <laughs> a two, 2.05 lifetime hitter. <laughs> 2.05 lifetime hitter. Above the Mendoza line? Yeah, well, this is when your glove, which was only okay, could keep you in the lead. <laughs> 
Uh, Mike, what is your Bianca Lana? So the Mets are playing the Royals, and fans, long-suffering Mets fans, face off against long-suffering Royals fans. Come on. How long-suffering were they? I'm a Mets fan. Maybe I only look at this asconce because I have perfected sports fandom. I only take the joy out of it. I never get down. If the Mets get swept in this series, it will have been worse than if they won. But you know what? I won't even be down. I think we had a great year, this long-suffering thing. So I started to think about how long-suffering people were, and uh, I wanted to do this while also at the same time poking a thumb in the eye of Yahoo, so I did the classic Google search results. Typed in long-suffering Mets. I'm not going to ask you guys to guess. 26,300 results for long-suffering Mets fans. Typed in long-suffering Royals fans. Got 1,560 results. Now, I figured if the Mets got 26,000 results, the phrase long-suffering Cubs fans would be bigger. They've suffered more for longer. No. Long-suffering Cubs fans only got about 3,000 results. And from there, fans of other teams have apparently suffered less as measured by Google. The Phillies clock in at long-suffering 1020. But wait, didn't they recently win a World Series? See, a lot of these results were links to the next day's story or stories around this uh, Phil's World Series championship for the long-suffering Phillies fans. It finally came to pass. Uh, Long-suffering Jays fans, they were the team who had gone longest without making the postseason. That was at 626. Long-suffering Reds fans, I took to mean fans of the Warren Beatty movie, so you have to price that in, but that was at 605. (laughs) Some other impressive teams, like the Mariners, they they are long-suffering, 549 search results. I think an, an entirely ironic 167 long-suffering Yankees fans, although if you parse the results, a bunch were from 1990, a lot of those results. So yeah, at that point, they had suffered a long time. Um, you can't really do long-suffering Cardinals fans, which is a ridiculous concept in the baseball context. I noticed that search results three through seven mentioned Matt Leinert. So you know what was going on there. Indians, 384. Dodgers, 267. I think Dodgers underrepresented. A team that was overrepresented, not because they're not long-suffering. I just don't think they have that many fans. So what fans they have might have suffered a long time, but they don't seem to have a raucous fan base. It's the Astros. There are 804 long references to long-suffering Astros fans. So by that measure, the number of references to long-suffering Padres fans who've suffered just as long, it was one. 46. So that says to me that there really are no Padres fans. If you suffer long enough, you just lose fans. Twins and A's clocked in at respectively 96 and 85. That seemed underrepresentative. Maybe they just didn't have huge fan bases. You know, if there was a way to norm this for size of the fan base or size of the fan base who's going to write stuff that shows up in a Google search engine, that would be interesting. But the last, the least number of long-suffering fans, there are a total of four Google hits. Google I was going to guess 413. <laughs> there are a total of four for long-suffering Diamondback fans. That's my suffering count. Suffer on. All right. A couple of important questions. Did you put quotes around these uh, yes. terms? Yes. Yes. Oh, thank God. Yes. I hate it when people don't put the quotes around. So long, and, then, and then, you know, some of these teams, like I didn't do A's and athletics, but Nats get 337 and Nationals get 151. So apparently there were 488 long-suffering Nats or Nationals fans. But I didn't give other teams the, uh, the, the benefit of the doubt. So I didn't If you add in long-suffering Yankees. Metropolitans fans, right. you're probably right. over 30,000. Right. I'm a long-suffering consumer of 
poorly done comparative Google result journalism. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is among the best. <laughs> it is. Um, my other point is the Mets getting swept is not that painful of, of a result. Oh, you mean it's like cauterizing the wound? Yeah, like you a don't. Game seven l- loss? Let's say if the Mets lost to the Royals in the exact same manner in which the Red Sox lost to the Mets in 1986, mm-hmm. you would be able to take all of only joy out of that experience. Mostly joy. We'll, we'll check N- back in joy. with you. <laughs> Net yeah. joy? Well, if they get if they get screwed by a call, for instance, but you know, errors happen. I just I think I've perfected it. Maybe maybe I will be depressed, but maybe that is the perfect state. Like it's only rational and maybe good to get really really down after ridiculous losses. What's the long suffering part exactly? That's won the World Series like a decade ago. Oh, that was nothing. First of all, it was 2000. There was the whiff of there's no way to beat the Yankees in the air. They only went five games. It didn't even seem real. It seemed like uh, some team back then. It seemed like some team can, from the National League has to make it, and they did, and then they lose in five. We can we can discuss this next week, Stefan. Long suffering Browns fans. Well, I didn't do NFL. One thousand eight hundred and sixty. Most of them Scott Rab related. <laughs> Stefan, what is your Bianca Lana? During the Giants Cowboys broadcast on Sunday, Fox announcer Joe Buck told a story about a former Giants player and commentator whose son died in the World Trade Center on 9-11. Buck then added, I can't think of any organization that over the years since 2001 that's done more for first responders than the New York football Giants. I noticed it, and so did a Jerome Butcher on Twitter. You can follow him at Pimpin Van Smack. Goodness. At Buck goes with New York football Giants in case anyone forgot the baseball left about 60 years ago. Oh, so this wasn't a dispute about who had given more to first responders. It's about the use of football giants. It is. Okay. A little afterball twist. All right. All right. Our most bureaucratic and self-aggrandizing sport, of course, has many empty verbal ticks and jargon-infused redundancies. I've always liked position, as in the quarterback position, and the use of football as an attributive noun, usually before the words game and player, and also in the name of the older of the two teams that share a stadium in New Jersey. The Giants were founded in 1925 by bookie Tim Mara, who borrowed the nickname name of one of the local baseball teams. That wasn't unusual. There was a New York Yankees football team and a St. Louis Cardinals one and a Detroit Tigers one, among others. The New York Times' first game story 90 years and three weeks ago identified the Giants as simply the New York Giants, a professional football 11. Jim Thorpe was on that team. But a couple of weeks later, the Times reported that, quote, the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets from Philadelphia defeated the New York football Giants, capital F, by the score of 14 nothing. It stuck in the media. In 1937, to distinguish the baseball and football teams legally, the Mara family incorporated their team as the New York Football Giants. Even after the New York Baseball Giants moved to San Francisco in 1958, the full name of the New York Football Giants persisted in print into the 1970s. These days, the name remains the legal one, and it pops up occasionally in the Times, usually in paid death notices. But it also remains a popular fan-based dog whistle. Why? Because it lets blowhards like Chris Berman, who's been pounding New York football giants into submission, allegedly as an homage to Howard Cosell for 30 years. It lets them go all John Facenda, Frozen Tundra, the New York football giants. And it lets fans show off their insider status. You know, the team's name actually is the New York football giants or their finely tuned irony. The giants milk it. This year's team media handbook is titled the New York football giants, 2015 information guide. And it repeats New York football giants on every player bio page, a Google search. Mike, you're not the only one 
turns up 170,000 results for New York football giants with about 1,300 hits on Google News. On Twitter, there is a weekly stream of New York football giants. At Greg Fights Bears. How about them New York football giants? At Mike Kango. God, friends, family, and the New York football giants. At Isaac Meep. My left testicle can tackle better than the New York football giants. Here's a good string in the New York Football Giants Twitter timeline from October 15th. First, from the verified account of former NFL quarterback position quarterback Sage Rosenfels, hashtag TBT, to having the honor to play for the New York Football Giants, first-class organization from top. Then we get not-famous Jason. Good morning. The New York Football Giants can go to hell. And finally, there's a link to an eBay auction. Check out New York football giants plush bear in a coach's jacket with NFL.com tag. Pimpin' Van Smack and I were not the only ones to notice Joe Buck, New York football giants sing on Sunday. Brian Sutcliffe, radio play-by-play voice of Prosper Eagle Baseball, Time Warner Cable Sports Broadcaster, voice actor, Texas Aggie, tweeted, I believe that anyone saying New York football giants should be incarcerated. Strong belief. There's at least one other person who might agree before the 2008 Super Bowl won by the New York football giants. This guy told USA Today he was sick and tired of people saying New York football giants. It's driving me nuts as if everybody remembers the old New York Giants baseball team. As if, Joe Buck. As if. Yeah. I do like that. The the users, it was a mix of derision and respect. In yeah, fact. and I think if yeah. you analyze, I was analyzing the Twitter feed for <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. And every sort of sort like of long-suffering of, Yankees fans break down. That phrase breaks down just like New York football giants. Yeah. Every 20th was someone saying, as if anyone remembers the baseball team. And then, you know, you get your ironic usage. But most of them seem to be in all caps. Yeah. Josh, what's your Bianca Lana? I was not going to do a sports uh, language thing, but just a brief note in keeping with uh, this very short-term tradition. A friend pointed out to me, like, Alabama ran back several interceptions for touchdowns a few weeks ago, which were described by announcers and in the media as pick sixes. Mm -hmm. My friend pointed out to me it should be picks six, like attorneys general. So I just want to throw that out there. Picks six, plural, plural pick sixes. Now, for an uneasy transition, before he shot and killed his girlfriend through a closed bathroom door, the biggest controversy about South African sprinter Oscar Pistorius was whether he should be allowed to compete in the Olympics. Pistorius, who was just released from prison and is now on house arrest, was born without fibulas, became a champion runner with the aid of prostheses. He went on to win six Paralympic gold medals. Um, All the while, he was also trying to compete against runners who didn't have artificial limbs. In 2008, the sportocrats at the IAAF ruled that he was not eligible after a biomechanics professor did a little analysis, and he ruled that Pistorius' artificial limbs gave him an unfair advantage. That ruling was reversed by the Court of Arbitration for Sport. They ruled that the analysis didn't take into account the disadvantage that Pistorius had coming out of the starting blocks and the 400 meters and going around the curves. Pistorius ultimately did compete. Um, He was in the 2012 Summer Olympics. He advanced to the semifinals in the 400. He finished last in his heat. Six months later, he shot and killed his girlfriend. End of Oscar Pistorius's uh, track and field career. I bring this all up now because nine months before the Olympics in Rio next year, German long jumper Marcus Rim just leaped 8.40 meters 
at the International Paralympic Committee World Championships in Doha, Qatar. Uh, Rem, who is 27 years old, got run over by a boat while wakeboarding when he was 14. His right leg was amputated below the knee. He works as a professional prosthetist when he's not competing. And when he is competing, everyone else is going for second place. Now, if you don't have your um, long jump goodness chart next to you while you're listening to the podcast, you don't really know where 8.40 meters ranks there. That's 27 and a half feet. It's five and a half feet ahead of the second place finisher at the Paralympics. More amazingly, and you might be surprised to learn, nine centimeters further than the mark that won the 2012 Summer Olympics. Greg Rutherford, British guy, uh, he set in winning the long jump. Um, He's got a lot of centimeters to go to break the world record, though. So Rutherford's personal best, though, that might be true. But, you know, his personal best of 8.51 meters, it's better than Rem's, but it's, you know, within 11 centimeters. It's clear that if Rem was allowed to compete in Rio, it would not just be a feel-good story. He'd be one of the favorites to win the gold medal. What's less clear is whether Rem, like Pistorius, will be allowed to compete outside of Paralympic competitions. So uh, back in 2014, the head of the German Federation of Track and Field said that biometric measurements showed that Rem might be getting the benefit of a catapult effect as he leaps off his right prosthetic leg on takeoff. Uh, he added that there is significant doubt the jumps with a leg prosthesis and a natural joint are comparable. A fellow competitor also told a German broadcaster in 2014 that Rem's prosthetic seemed, quote, 15 centimeters longer than his other leg. So that is like maybe one and a half times the difference between Rutherford and Rem's personal best. Um, that actually echoed complaints by Pistorius's competitors who always alleged that he was, quote unquote, racing tall that he was getting an advantage via unnaturally long legs. Uh, Rem countered by saying that his prosthetic is only three or four centimeters longer than his other leg, but the disparity keeps him from hobbling during the run-up to his jump. Uh, Rem wanted to compete at the 2015 Track and Field World Championships. He was left off the roster, again by the German Federation. Um, he's still in limbo as the IAAF has not made any kind of universal ruling on how to deal with athletes who use prosthetics. Rem claims he does not want to use the courts as Pistorius did, um, you know, before that other time he used the courts. Um, but it really seems inevitable at this point. Uh, the German long jumper said in an interview, it's a shame that the IAAF just see the problems and reduce an athlete to the prosthesis. I hope in the future I will have a chance to discuss how we can do this. So this is going to be an interesting story to follow before uh, 2016. Actually, I mean, I don't think any really good studies have been done of this guy, but just based on what I've read, it seems like the case is much stronger um, that he's getting an unfair advantage versus the case that Pistorius was. It's just a straight line sprint and then a jump off of a prosthetic leg. I mean, it seems like it would be A, easier to study whether um, you get an unfair advantage or not. And B, I think it just seems intuitive that that would be the case. Still, it'd be fun to see this guy compete. Nobody, you know, the long jump's not like a super uh, glamour event. Maybe put it, make a th make it three on three. You need to spice it up a little bit. Um, I like to see Marcus Rem in the Olympics. That's what I'm saying. We would love your feedback when we talked about it today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. Also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hangup and listen to iTunes. You can find us by going to iTunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. 
become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein, and the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.